and welcome to the Daft Souls podcast. My name is Matt Lees and I'm joined by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matthew Lees. Hello, Quentin Smith. We what episode is it, Matthew? All day. I have no idea. I knew you didn't know. You know I never know. And I rused you. Why do you embarrass me in front of the listeners like this? I thought you were going to say, in front of my child. And my child. Kevin, get back in the cupboard. Quins, before we start, can I ask you a question? Yes. What's your favourite dinosaur? Oh. <laughs> uh, as commenters guessed, it is the... Pterodactyl. I'm glad that we've cleared that up. So this week we've got a bunch of things. We've actually been playing quite a few games recently, which is uh, uncharacteristic. You've been playing some Final Fantasy 15 and some For Honor. Mm-hmm. I've been playing some Hyperlight Drifter and some Neo. Neo. Um, and yeah. And also, I've written down in my notes, Quinn's is sad. But should we get to that now or afterwards? Well, we should also mention we've got return of a couple of special features. We uh, do have some special features. We ventured into my childhood and played a game from the 80s. And also, we've got Charlie... Cleveland. Charlie Cleveland. I knew his second name. Why didn't you You were just I... pacing the singing. Yeah. I was just enjoying the name Charlie. Charlie. Uh, yeah, Charlie. we have uh, Charlie Cleveland, our lead designer, maybe, on Subnautica. Yeah, I have to look up his actual job description before we get to that bit. But yeah, Subnautica. And I believe that before that he worked on Natural Selection 2. Oh, did he? Yeah. And maybe Natural Selection 1. That's a fine game of playing facehuggers. Good games. Uh, Good games. And uh, then we'll have some questions at the end. Let's go. What a feature-packed podcast. Too many features, I think. So, what would you like to talk about first, Quinns? (laughs) Remind me what you wrote down at the top of your sheet. Quinns is sad. And then FF15... And then for honor, let's focus on me being sad. Okay, I'm sad. Welcome to the sad cast. Uh, Quentin's sadness the cupboard. You open the cupboard. It's you've me. been writhing around in this cupboard for a little while and not really sure about telling anyone about it. Well, yeah, I, I, did, I didn't want to bring it up on the podcast until uh, I was confirmed that it was a thing. Mm. But uh, you've been putting up with me reliably like once a week now, going, "Hey, Matt, I'm going to do a video on you know, like for example, off-world trading company," and then. About or like Valhalla or lots oh, and Valhalla, lots of Valhalla, the things. bartender simulator. Yeah. yeah, and then about two, three days later, I go, oh, I don't want to anymore. It's pointless. Why would anyone make videos about video games? Uh, speaking candidly for a second, yeah, I'm just um, not feeling video games so much right now. Mm-hmm. This was always going to happen. I've been on, you know, a lot of the episodes of the Daft Soul podcast for years now. And, uh, you know, this this podcast was always going to coincide with a time when I'm just not enjoying video games that yeah. much. So I thought we, rather than like hiding it from people, I could share it. We could talk about it. We could we could boost me up. These windows of malaise are interesting, and I I don't really know where they come from or why they go away, but they do exist. I mean, it is a very it. I mean, to to say something that is like not often said in video games press, it is like quite a occasionally thin medium to work. I mean, if you work in movies, you have a lot of like very, uh, what's the word? Like um, they have tremendous things to say. Uh, Yeah. If you work in music, you have people who pour their heart and soul into this. Obviously video game designers do that as well. But on any given week, you can play a few video games and they can all feel a bit fluffy and pointless. Yeah. And when you do look for meaning, like I really desperately need right now, I'm just not finding it. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I actually had the exact same thing, although it was during the period where Cool Ghost was completely on hiatus, so it wasn't a problem. Oh, you lucky dog. Um, yeah, I was just, I was playing things, but nothing I, nothing grabbed me. And I kept trying to find something that would like make me feel something, but I kept just stumbling into the same things. And especially it doesn't help when, when even 
if you're not able to find these connections with games, you can enjoy the mechanics or something interesting. But I find that the more games you've played, the less you can be surprised by these things. You can just go, oh yeah, it's a bit of this, a bit of this, and a bit of this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you can appreciate the the impressive use of cocktail making, but it doesn't feel like a new drink. Yeah, sometimes you just want to have like a dry January where, with entirely yeah. new stuff. I will actually, what I want to throw at you is an idea that um, uh, I was going to do in one of the videos that I couldn't bring myself to finish which was uh, my Gravity Rush 2 video, mm-hmm. which ended up being, like, I had to abort that because I got about a thousand words writing the script into what is unquestionably the bleakest thing I've ever <laughs> written. But let's salvage um, uh, just one idea or point that I had from it, Okay, which is, um, I th- thought it was interesting how, if you want to be a critic, if you really want to be, like, a quote-unquote, like, really good video game journalist, uh-huh. then you need to exist on the knife edge of... Um, of whether games are good enough or not. Because you do have to be very critical because it's not tremendously useful like to um to walk around saying, Oh, this is everything is brilliant. Because if you set the bar that low, then all games pass it and then you can't you lose some of your critical faculties. Um, yeah, you become like an enthusiast, a cheerleader, but, but... Right. Yeah. it's Obviously, there's far more nuance to this topic than this, but uh, as someone who often just tries to see the worst in a lot of things, like to try to go... If you want to go to places that other critics aren't, if you want to always look for stuff that's problematic in uh, games that everyone else is raving about, then you end up sort of... Essentially, what you're doing is skirting the abyss there. Yeah. You are voluntarily seeing the worst in this medium where you have to love it in order to do your job. Yeah. Uh, and I guess I feel like I've fallen into that abyss recently. Ah, right. Where it's fine if you go, well, you know, this this game fails at this and this game fails at this. Uh, um, so long as you can go, but this game, and, you know, launch your grappling hook out of the abyss and go, but this game is great. If you don't have that great game slash grappling hook, then suddenly you're just looking at all games and going, none of you are good enough. And it's it's really... Kind of scary. Honestly, I've been writing about games for 16, 17 years. It's the first time I've had it this bad. Oh, really? Yeah. You see, I got it quite bad uh, when I was working at Video Gamer. And um, and I think a lot of that ties directly into the fact that there is a, a very clear um, relationship between how critical you are and how successful you are as a critic. Mm. You don't actually need to be a good critic. You just need to be scathing and sharp and, if possible, funny. Um and yeah, so I found myself falling into that trap of doing the same thing of like, and I wasn't intending to do that. It was just, you know, I'd, I'd play a new release game because I was in the new release cycle and I'd see that the reviews had had all gone, oh, this is incredible. And I'd play and I'd go, this isn't incredible. And then I'd make a video about it and it would do really well. But then I get what you mean though. It's it's almost a tricky thing in the fact that I can now get away with with just mainly being positive about stuff because of that, because people know that yes. I, because I've been mean in the past, people know, well, I think I think people should know that I do know what I'm talking about. I just don't feel the need to focus on that anymore. But without that, I wonder if I could. If I just come straight into this being like, you this see is it great. almost like as a way of proving yourself. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's what it was. I think it was uh, an interest when I was younger in, in being seen as a critic who was right, and I'm much less interested in that now. But at the same time, I have less of an interest in in. I have a different response to critical appraisal. Like for example, like um. Horizon Zero, Zero Dawn. Dawn just came out and it's it's looking at it it's like a huge open world beautiful game um about killing robot dinosaurs and yes. it's critically acclaimed through the bloody roof and i just kind of know from looking afar i'm like you're not going to like that and so you're probably not going to play it yes because i just know that it's like i'm looking i'm reading between the lines and the reviews and there's so much focus on what it looks like and lots of people going 
it doesn't really do anything new. It's just kind of an open world game and it doesn't innovate in any way. And I know just because I've seen games like this before and I've done it before that I just get into it and I just go, what's, what's, what? Yeah, but then you get into an interesting question because um, I think it is quite common in the video games press to like, you know, you give the MMO to the to review to the person Absolutely. who enjoys MMOs, but that then means that you don't, yeah, you, you never get a critique. You only get of, half yeah. of the opinion. Rather than if people don't know, the interesting thing about how Famitsu review games is that, um, you know, Famitsu being a long, long running, very the most famous Japanese video game magazine, um, games are scored out of forty because it's four people giving it scores out of ten. Uh, one of whom will, I think, I think, be like the um, the expert in the field, but one of whom will not have an interest in the field. And I mean, we've got a bit of that going on now. Like, uh, you know, I think Waypoint try and do that sort of thing a bit more, and Polygon do as well. But it's bloody time consuming, and it's like the idea of having two people playing. Like, I think I saw some people talking about Neo in regard to this and being like, I think it was Polygon being like, well, yeah, two people playing an eighty-hour game. It's like that's a lot of man hours. Um, so I think it's tricky. And I think we used to see this really commonly with, as you say, MMOs and Japanese RPGs. You just you couldn't trust review scores for those games at all. <laughs> because like, it's not just a case of going, well, who wants to review this? Who will review it? Like, you could not now, like, you could not pay me. Well, you could pay me, but it would be an, ex- an extortion amount of money for me to sit down and review an 80-hour game with a deadline to say, here's, you know, you've got four days, five days or a week. Yeah. Review this. You couldn't pay me to do that. It's hard enough for review editors to find one person to review an MMO, let alone multiple people. And so, you know, this is this when it comes down to is, is it's somebody who's, and this is, I was talking to somebody about this the other day and it's kind of a harsh thing to say in many regards, but like, I don't trust the, the judgment of somebody in terms of their judgment of whether or not a game is worth my time if they are willing to, um, to spend hundred hours working <laughs> for sixty to a hundred. So pounds, if they don't pounds. spend the time, then obviously they don't have a real real opinion. But if they are willing to spend that much time, then you've got so little in common with them. Yeah, exactly. You pay attention it's to the not. Anyway. It's not like I don't want that sound like hugely disrespectful. No, because I used sense. to be in that spot. I used to be somebody who'd be like, you know, what? I love games enough. I'm going to play this all week anyway. Then that's fine. I'll do it for money and and a bit of you know a career or fame or whatever. I used to be that guy, and so I don't want to judge it. But at the same time, where I'm at now in my life, it's like, dude, if you're going to spend a hundred hours for like a hundred quid, like I, I don't, I cannot empathize with that. Like, yeah, I mean, honestly, this is all ringing like so many bells in terms of, you know, when I'm looking at games that I might make videos on for cool ghosts, this is the position I'm in where if I know I'll hate something, then I'll go, well, that's not a necessarily useful addition to the conversation. I won't enjoy making a video on something mm-hmm, I don't like. Mm-hmm. But also if I know that a game is so me that I will love it to pieces, then it, I've probably said what I have to say about that genre or that particular idea. Oh, that's another trap because actually one of the games on this list, a game you've been playing and enjoying, Final Fantasy XV, yeah. I had a, a similar reverse experience with and the fact that I was looking forward to it so much and it seemed to be exactly what I was looking for in so many regards. I'm like, oh, I'm going to love it. And then I played it and I despised it. I found that mechanically it was just so thoughtless with the way it was thrown together um, <laughs> that it frustrated me immensely. But then that's fine. Like, I've got no problem with that. But then I found that I looked online and everyone else loved it. Yeah. And let's, let's talk a bit about Final Fantasy 15. I mean, to see everyone. And I, I just found, like, I mean, I haven't got anything valuable to say about it. This is the thing. Okay. Um, really. But I just found it like, I found I got an empathy with internet assholes in some regards because it was something that I was so looking forward to. And I felt in a way I, I kind of needed it, like a really nice, good, warm, big JRPG yeah. meaty. Oh, it's like a comfort blanket for me. And so when I found that A, not only was it not for me, but B, 
it was for everyone else and everyone else loved it. <laughs> it made me, um, I went beyond being sad. I felt angry. And I, I just, I was lashing out and going, this is rubbish. And I was, I was, the only thing that made me feel less angry is when I found other people who felt the same way. Well, this is honestly, um, that anger is a lot of what was in the sort of very journalist focused Gravity Rush 2 video that I will never make because Fair. It's, it's, honestly, it was like it, even writing it, I, I got, I had to, I was drinking multiple beers just to try and get the feelings out of like, you know, what is a journalist and what have I given to this hobby and what do I get back? The kind of stuff that I've seen a lot of like, journalists leave this hobby quite sad about because there's no exit strategy for this yeah like if you lose if you lose the love of games then you just are in a room full of journalists and they all go why are you here get out sometimes i've been here for 10 years and now i have to leave okay you kind of forget that sometimes actually the act of writing is is quite therapeutic like i've actually not so many but in the past few years i've written like multiple thousand word articles which i've never done anything with Mm. Like I wrote a four thousand word piece about fascism. Weirdly, before I then <laughs> before got the Guardian, before I got to... paid to do it, so yeah. that was kind of fine because it was a bit of a test run. But there've been other things I've written about that I'm just like, I don't really, I don't feel the need to share it. Like, yeah. but I found that writing it helped. But. I did that a lot as a kid. It helps you realize you have thoughts that. But yeah, just before we move on to Final Fantasy 15, this that you've you've reminded me, man. That that's the the anger is I think the least health healthy part of what I'm going through right now. Yeah, the when I'm looking at games and I'm like. These aren't, I have nothing interesting to say, these aren't interesting um, as a whole big thing. Every single games website becomes like nails on a chalkboard. If you go to like, I mean, sites yeah. I, don't, I don't mind, like Polygon or Rock, Paper, Shotgun, um, and they'll say like, oh, look at this, a publisher has announced this, and I will look at that and hate the publisher, I'll hate the designer, I'll hate the journalist for writing about yeah. it, because yeah. I will be thinking like, this isn't good enough, this isn't news. I felt the same way with Overwatch. Again, like everyone just, just, and the constant news cycle for Overwatch, I'm just like, it's okay. It's and and but I think this is interesting, and hopefully people won't find this self indulgent because I know that like in terms of games culture, anger and um, resentment is such a huge problem in the culture, and I find it interesting when I, I I brush with it myself, and I find these same kind of bubbling anger within me about stuff, and it's I know it's irrational, I know it's mad, and I know it's unpleasant. Well, I think it's a, a journalist has slightly more. I mean, a journalist at least has something in common with like the theoretical, you know, video game playing troll who lives in parents' basement because you're both people who spend inordinate amounts of time playing games and you give part of yourself to them. But um, I guess it's also that heavy link to nostalgia, and especially when you're trying to you're trying to get back to that place. I don't know if it's necessarily nostalgia. Well, maybe, but not it's ex- like, not exactly. You know but, what I mean? Yeah, sure. It's like certainly you have done this for a long time, and it's distressing to. Um, and I, I know my wife went through this. Um, like when you spend, say, fifteen years or how many years in games, and then you realize you're done with them, there is no golden handshake because every video game writer will become a freelancer as well. So there's no, I mean, it's worth their salt, right? Because. Uh, yeah, you know, given conditions, no, you know, uh, shade thrown at anyone who's been working at the same website for a long time. But um, what do you do when you're done? When you're done with video games, it's just you become a, a canker on the side of the industry because you don't like it, and the industry's run on positivity. Yeah. So if you're like, well, hey guys, maybe games are a bit shit, then it's like, who are you helping there? You can't do your job. You can't do anything. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Anyway, but so Final Fantasy 15. I, I've, I've had my therapeutic talk, whatever. <laughs> I think Final Fantasy 15 is interesting to play as someone who, you know, if you if you were really interested in how games are made, because it's like Metal Gear Solid 4 or Metal Gear Solid 5 in that it is absolutely a game where the most interesting thing is like realizing how piecemeal and kind of shattered it is, how yeah. weird and broken and how like and throughout Final Fantasy XV, there are phenomenal ideas and none of it like coheres together as a whole. 
Yeah. Like like the the central concept that I love so much about Final Fantasy 15 that just categorically almost isn't followed through ever except when it is is just the structuring of a game of four friends who are in a car together and on a yeah. road trip. Yeah. It's brilliant. The photography that um, if people haven't played it and maybe they shouldn't at the end every time you camp at the end of a day one of the characters in your party is an amateur photographer and you get to go through all of his like 10 photos of the day and pick which ones you're going to keep and then at the end of the game you've got a, a like a a Kodak reel of your holiday together. Yeah. Which is a fantastic idea. Like, um, it is lovely. And I love that he's like a bit crap sometimes. Like every now and then it's a great photo, but <laughs> there's a slight yeah. randomization to it. It's not like as neat as many games would have made And he will sometimes it. put Instagram filters on something that you didn't want and you go, oh, well, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, I actually personally like keeping the crap photos because that's, or some of them, you know, which because if you take... Uh, if you use an old film camera, then some of the photos are crap and that becomes part of the aesthetic of mm-hmm. that old photography. Um, yeah, I love that the game is based around a car. I love that you're sort of camping and exploring a world. I love that you're, um, so many of your combat moves involve The animation, the mocap in it, I love the pieces, I think is beautiful. But then similarly, while the dialogue is really often crackly and entertaining and there's a lot of good puns between the characters, it's astonishing that those poor scriptwriters couldn't do like any character development at all. Yeah. Like, they were given the job of, okay, we need you to write dialogue for, like, a hundred side quests, and there can be no interesting revelations between any of the characters at any point. Yeah. Which is, like, compared to something like Dragon Age, where, you know, you're finding out stuff about the characters all the time, you know, Bioware's Uber and Mass Effect and stuff. This is just so clearly, like, the right hand wasn't speaking to the left hand. The people who did the story-driven cutscenes couldn't talk to the uh, the side quest people. The people who designed the side quests couldn't you know, talk, I don't, talk to the artists. I don't know. It, like it's, it's I mean, it is... Like, if nothing else, I found it to be a wonderfully bizarre piece of work. It's the, the most it's, expensive mess. It's I've... like visibly so rich and yes. yet also felt remarkably thin. It's like an empty pie. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which I, I kind of found it strange. I think it was more that, and an interesting thing actually I, I found about it and a reflection I've had is that in the same way we talk about games changing and the fact that, you know, the way that games are built as services in some regards now and the way games are built as these, these updating things and just a way we need to kind of, you, you have to just shift with them and appreciate that in some regards they've changed. This one feels like it's a different shift than one that I've not been a part of in the fact that it happens quite commonly in, in Japanese games and JRPGs especially of, um, but outside of that as well, of having the story um, exposition and character development for a game actually happening outside of it. Oh, you mean in the movie and the anime? Yeah, so there's that. and there's, But I know that EA do this a lot as well. People do comics and things and they do... So it's kind of part of the pre-release hype for games is having this world building occurring outside of it. And it's absolutely miserable because uh, it, it is extremely rare that game designers can balance you know, plot being told outside of the main object. Exactly. With, no, it, it's awful. It's yeah. like having a film where like, oh, you didn't read the book? Like, you're not going to get the film. Yeah, it's so... It's, it's very strange. It's so messy. But I found that there, there seemed to be quite a big correlation. I said that as if I've talked to, like, thousands of people. Ignore me. Um, it's the old <laughs> psychology degree coming out. But I found there was a bit of correlation between people who had watched some, maybe the anime or maybe, you know, watched the film before they played the game and those who hadn't. Because I felt it was just like, I really wanted to like these characters and like this world, but it didn't have any... It didn't tell you... It didn't have anything. Yeah, no, it didn't. Like, I was really willing to... Because I'm playing it with my wife, and we've both played a lot of Final Fantasy, so we're really invested, passing the pad and stuff. And, like, not for want of trying, man, we are sat next to each other, and we will be saying, like, 
what's going on? Yeah, but absolutely. not like as people, not as idiots, like as people who've been fervently watching every cutscene. And uh, I was talking to my friend Clark about it, and he was saying that, um, oh yeah, a lot of and something that I found out is true. A lot of the real plotting and storytelling is in radios that are scattered throughout the world. And none of the characters like talk about that. And my God, it's not like in um, Deus Ex, the human revolution and mankind divided, which I, which are games I really like, uh-huh. um, where you listen to the radio and the radio is what a radio should be. It's a small piece of backstory that fleshes out the world. Uh-huh. Whereas in Final Fantasy, it is like the cliff notes of the game you're playing Wow! of like, you know, oh, and such and such a empress, of course, has been reported dead. And you're like, okay. Which yeah. is a great idea if you could force players to listen to it. But if they're just well, in that's cafes, what a cutscene is. I, know, I know. But no, no, it isn't. Like you can do otherwise. Like if you have sections where you're driving, it will be like you know, okay, we're going to make sure they listen to it now rather than music. But oh then, God, why isn't it on the car but radio? Then you lose the ability to. Yeah, I mean, it should be. But I mean, that's the thing is, is it, it was to me. A, it's, it's, it's just so it's in pieces. You can see the fractures. Though. I mean, yeah, I've they've been working on it for like six, seven years, and you can tell. But there is Maybe a, longer than but that. But uh, yeah, but I, I tell you what, it is some of those shards that you pick up from the rubble and look at are just gorgeous. Like, well, I really, I did actually, I, I didn't enjoy it to begin with a lot. Um, And then I started to enjoy it when I was like exploring a cave and it started to actually have the characters like having back and forth yeah, the dungeon. Yes, and I was yeah. like, oh, games never do this. Games never have like characters in central dialogue them. in a cave. Yes. About a cave. No, every single dungeon has its own conversations which the characters will have. Which is kind of awesome. I just found that the combat was so floppy and strange the combat um, that it, I couldn't get my head around it it's unique but I, I, I I'm loath to criticise the combat because um, I think it is a really innovative evolution of like what Final Fantasy like is and can be I think like the fact that it keeps all the same menus and equipment and gear and spells for the Final Fantasy fans but then there's some fantastic tactical stuff. Have like, you ever played Kingdom Hearts? ah uh, no right okay because if, <laughs> if you play Kingdom yes. Hearts you're just like why the fuck isn't this like Kingdom Hearts? Because Kingdom Hearts is is the same thing, but rather than having this very loose MMO thing, it's just like it's a combination of Final Fantasy twelve then and Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, but there's like there's no connection. So in, in Kingdom Hearts, you have this, all the same stuff, all the same spells, menus, mm-hmm. etc. But it's also like a kind of chunky hack and slash thing, and it's really fun. Um, and it's like that but without any sense of connection. Right. But anyway, there was just some weird stuff, and like the fact that you have the ability to dodge attacks. Yes. Like, but. With the most gorgeous animation, but like just the, the it it has all of these systems in it as if it is a third person action game. Oh sure, no, it doesn't and work. Yeah, it yes. doesn't work. But like the fact, yeah. but also like you could name ten flaws about the combat, and I could listen to them, and in return, like tennis, name ten awesome things that I think are really cool about the combat, like uh, like how ridiculously powerful spells are, which I think is just such a delight for a Final Fantasy game to say, oh yeah, you always cast like Fyra and Blizzara and stuff. Yeah. But in this game, you cast Blizzara and then the visual effects and the effects on the world are so ridiculous. You're like, what did I just do? Uh, <laughs> like, did you mess around with the spells, Roman? Not that far. I had some early spells, but I mean, okay. it's one of those things maybe I need to revisit and try and look at it with fresh eyes because I think that it was a bizarre thing. I was so disappointed that it wasn't quite what I was imagining that I just became angry and I couldn't enjoy it. Which is interesting because I've enjoyed games which are sloppy as hell but I think it's the expectation was a killer for me and I think that maybe well, not no, nostalgia I, I, I but I thought I would mention this to you as well because um, it's an interesting counterpart to Dragon's Dogma because both are actually structured in a similar way of like you know cr- travelling across an open world mm. and having like this third person combat with um, close friends supporting you um, but while I actually think that I found that uh, I enjoyed the combat in Final Fantasy XV more than Dragon's Dogma, Whoa. Dragon's Dogma, I think, is a game where you expect nothing and it delivers all this awesome stuff, whereas Final Fantasy XV is you expect everything and 
it tr- tries to pass it to you, then drops it in your lap. It is interesting. And I'm very surprised you say you prefer the combat in Final Fantasy 15. But maybe as we talked about other stuff, like I've got more of an affinity for like tricky stuff. I am a giant fop. So what I'm enjoying in the combat is like just how cool some of the animations are, just how lovely that some of the sound design is. Like, for me, it's less of a tactical game and more just delighting at what's happening on the screen. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But I find it actually it's fascinating because that actually there's some huge similarities between Dragon's Dogma and Final Fantasy 15. But in my regard, in my head, they're like reverse versions of the games because it's like in Final Fantasy 15 you have this like fabulous world and this like really shonky combat, whereas in Dragon's Dogma you have this like fabulous combat system, but this like deeply unfinished world, like empty <laughs> cities, like pl- bits that are clearly not done. So I just feel like it's like. The similar projects that have gone in different directions because of constraints. Yeah. And like, you know, they were just like, fuck it, we've got to get the food looking good. <laughs> um, <laughs> food looks so good, dude. Whereas like the the prototype for the combat in Dragon's Dogma just carries it. It doesn't matter that the rest of the game just isn't finished. You just go, <laughs> this is so good. Um, and actually a game I've been playing which has uh, not as tight in some way, well, it's just different actually. Yeah, let's talk about Neo. I've been playing Neo and I really enjoy it. Um, it's But it's kind of nothing in a way and that's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm sold. I mean, maybe it isn't. Like, I think it's one of these weird things where... Okay, so let me get this straight. Neo is a game that's kind of nothing but maybe it isn't. Uh, yeah. I, it's, it's uses, what do you do? What is it? It's an action game, a third person action game, which is very clearly heavily inspired by Dark Souls in terms of the fact that you have too many items and there's like just all the Dark Souls rules Oh, is this the Japanese uh, feudal game? Yes. Uh, okay. So it's like samurai and samurai Dark and Souls. stuff. Samurai Dark Souls is how people describe it. But it's interesting in the fact that like whilst all the surface details are very Dark Souls and a lot of the elements which might surprise me uh, are Dark Souls, so they don't surprise me, which is why I kind of maybe don't feel like as strongly as it because I've just done it so much that I'm like, okay, um... You know, things like you can run past enemies to try and open up shortcuts to make it easier. You can try and get to the next right. save point and, or, you know, you can, all of these things basically like, you know, maybe a treasure box would be bad. Maybe there'll be a guy <laughs> around every corner. Uh, maybe it's dark and dungeony. Uh, maybe there's zombies. It's all like very, very like by the books. But what's interesting about it is the fact that actually it's a very traditional game. And it's it's almost very traditional in the fact that it's now quite openly copying the mechanics of a very popular 10-year-old game. And I find it strange that it's like, what made Dark Souls really interesting originally was that it was so different in many regards. And now it's like, Neo is is not different at all. Yes, it is the least interesting kind of yeah. uh, clone. Yeah, It not, is. Well, not clone, obviously, but... but. It's, it's uninteresting in like a plethora of ways. <laughs> um, but I still really like it. Oh, okay. um, like it has... Uh, it's it's very traditional. It's in fact more traditional than Dark Souls in terms of its design. It's level based, uh, which means you have a menu in between where you can go to like the blacksmith, and you have like traditional loot style systems. So you can like deconstruct stuff. You can re-roll stats on things. You you get drops of loot. So when you kill a boss, it explodes into like purple things that you pick up, and you have way too much loot, and you end up selling it all. But every now and then, you're like, oh, look, this axe is really cool. I'm gonna crash it down to make it my axe look like this axe, and and it has all of this stuff, and it even does that classic video game thing, like, rather than it being like Dark Souls thing, being like, oh yeah, here's a fucking boss. Oh, you're dead. How do you kill it? Oh no. Uh, <laughs> in this, it's like, oh, that's weird. In this level, I have picked up so many wet things that make my weapon turn to fire that I cannot pick up anymore. And then it's like, oh, it's the boss. It is weak to fire. <laughs> so it's like super video games um, in a really old school way. But it's really pleasant. And it's interesting that actually in many ways, it's uh, the same people 
I think it's the same people who made it. Maybe not, but it reminds me a lot of Onimusha. Remember that? Ye- no. No, not oh, a lot of people do. Oh, wait, is that the one with John, with, um, John Reno? The third one did, yeah. The third yeah. one had uh, John Reno in it, which was just like, what's going on? Um, but yeah, it reminds me of that and the fact that it's got this really solid third-person combat system that's quite fiddly. It's got this stuff to do with, like, each of the weapons has three different stances, like low, mid, and high. Mm. And your stamina bar, which is, again, very trad Dark Souls, you, the only way you can really keep going is by refreshing your stamina bar and getting your stamina back quickly by dodging at the perfect time or switching weapon stances at the perfect time. So the fighting in it has this very... It's got the same sort of weight as Dark Souls of being like, oh, you press the button, you press the button. But also has this sort of weird methodical kind of dance to it of you being like, you don't just swing in and then dodge away. You swing in and you stand there for like half a second because you need to wait for the exact moment to dodge. So it becomes this sort of, um, I guess it does feel like very samurai. And when you're pulling it off, it's amazing because you are just like, boom, block, dodge, stab behind, jump over the head and gives you a really exciting move set that, I mean, I've not got enough knowledge of the area, but I, I make it, it reminds me of like Soul Calibur in some ways of being like this sort of, you can do a lot of shit. Like if you, if, if you, when you get good at it, you realize that it's not just like, oh, how am I not good at this? And it's just because you don't know how to do it. It's in this, it's like, at first it was a bit overwhelming. I'm like, oh man, I've got to be good at this. Like in a way I'm not good at games. Like, and you can foresee yourself being good enough to be like, yeah, come in with a low attack. They lose their guard. So you switch to your high stance and do more damage. And then you switch back to mid stance and do this special move. There's a ton of like depth to the combat. Again, unlocks in a really traditional way with like skill points and getting more skills as the game advances and stuff. So it's just this sort of really enjoyable fluff, but it's interesting that it's like it's so, a really traditional game. It sounds quite good. Like, but if I play uh, Dark Souls, Demon Souls, Bloodborne for the um, uh, for the world that I get to explore and see what's around a corner and and uh, see vistas and strange creatures. How's the world building? The world building is weak, um, to be honest. But the characterization and the the um, the kind of creatures and strangeness you discover is pretty cool. But it's interesting. It's like it's very strange because all of the monsters are based on traditional Japanese demons. Okay, so that seems like they'd be a little curious. They are, but it's interesting how it's like they're very strange, but also in their own way quite traditional. It's just that they're based on a tradition which is our culture is not as familiar with. And so you have lots of things with a very specific style, lots of things with one big eye, lots mm. of like weird cyclopsy things and things with long lolling tongues. So everything has a very similar art design because it's all based on like old Japanese drawings and folklore. Um, and there's still, it's kind of like silly, trite stuff. Like the first level, the pre-tutorial level is like you're in the Tower of London and you're just, <laughs> what? you're fighting beef eaters and it's like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't lead with that. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, but then it's, it, it's a shame because it doesn't continue with that very strongly. And it's like, it just has that like, because your character is inexplicably, I think, Irish and everyone else is Japanese. What? And you're a pirate. And it has this story that has loads of like real traditional like Japanese figures in it, like loads of famous okay. old figures like Hanzo, Hattori and all these people. And I can't remember the names. I'm not good enough. But And it has some really nice stuff. It has like cutscenes. It has like, it isn't like open world. It has cutscenes between missions. And my favorite thing so far is all the characters have these little spirits that are like these little flowing little floaty animals of bright colours and sometimes they talk and in the cutscenes it's like your character sternly looks at this other Japanese character and behind them appears this like chirpy dog or a big dragon or something and it's like okay 
fine. And again, it's like, it is that traditional thing if you have the ability to like change these creatures, change these um these spirits that you have equipped and they all do different element damage and stuff. But it's just quite awesome being like, yeah, I've got a big purple bull. And so like you've got a, a, a charge bar and when it's full, it's like, it's almost like a get out of jail free card. It's like, oh, I'm in trouble here. I'm going to get killed. And you just go, boom, press the buttons. It's like, ah, big purple bull. <laughs> and then you're swinging a massive flaming weapon. So it's this weird thing. It's like basically what they've done is they've taken the uh, the structure of a Dark Souls game made it way more video gamey of being like loot drops, replaying missions, crafting, and all this stuff I usually am not interested in at all, added in some stupid swoopy special moves, and just made this pretty hard-as-nails action game that feels like, it feels like a PlayStation 2 game in a really good way. Yeah, I'm getting that vibe from what you're describing. But it's weird. It's like, it's odd to have something so trad just popping up in 2017. Well, we can kind of chain this together because I've been playing something that is kind of similar to what you're describing, but is unquestionably a game from 2017. And that is For Honor. Yeah. For Honor. And again, weirdly, like, because now I'm getting into Neo, I'm like, I'm probably not going to play For Honor because yeah. I've already got this, like, chunky medieval weapon dueling game. Right. So For Honor is Ubisoft's new billion dollar thing. It is um, <clears throat> along the lines of Rainbow Six Siege, um, a quite a thin single player experience. Um, uh, because it's absolutely a multiplayer game first and foremost, you're gonna have a oh Christ. It, it's kind of like a MOBA. Um, the way that the main sort of competitive mode is structured is you've got uh, little armies of about hundred dudes on each side. You are one of the big heroes who can effortlessly crush these little soldiers. You can capture points in the map to push your side forward. Um, but mostly the heart of it is they've tried to make something that's kind of like competitive multiplayer, Dark Souls a bit, but not. Um, sword combat. Yeah, so it's like dueling with axes and swords. Yep, you can be... Uh, oh, it's it's Weirdly, um, I don't know if you ever played the mod Pirates, Vikings and Knights. No. Um, okay. Was it, it a mod for? It was a mod for Half-Life. Okay. And then they did Pirates, Vikings and Knights 2 for Half-Life 2. And it was essentially this, but with a sense of humour. Um, <laughs> because this is um, Vikings, Knights and Samurai. Sure. And the world building is like some of the dumbest stuff. Like as someone who is personally really into history... It, it it's like having a shower which is broken and occasionally blasts you with gold water because I'll be like, oh, look at the animation on this longsword guy where he'll use the hilt of his weapon to hit someone in the eye before swinging the sword. Like, it's it's really cool seeing how knights fight with longswords in it because they use them kind of like pickaxes. Right. They'll swing it in, but then, you know, also use the bottom of the weapon as much as the top. Huh. And- yeah, it looks quite, like, beefy and dynamic. I've seen yes. videos of it, and there's lots of, like, leaping and knocking people off edges and stuff. There is... Sometimes. Yes. Maybe, but it- I mean, the problem is with this, it's almost like, uh, in the same way, you know, you can look at people on Instagram and be like, oh, my life's so boring. Like, there's a tendency now with, like, video games where people are just sharing snippets on Twitter or video or, I'm like, Facebook. I'm so good at killing of, like, people, yeah. Either them being great or just something really cool that happens. Yes. I mean, the first thing to know is that... Um, the way they've designed the combat is not massively chunky and heavy. They've tried to do that, but within the context of a system that you lock onto each other and then you can have your stance that is left, right, or up. And then if you attack from that angle, then your opponent has to have their stance in the matching right area to block. And then you can do grabs, but you can throw someone's grab off. Um, so it's kind of like rock, paper, scissors, but also in up, left, and right, um, mm-hmm. rather than just, I'm going to fling myself. It's not like Gang Beasts, where you fling your knight <laughs> into someone, which I would play, by the way. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, so it's a little fluffier than that. And also, Brendan Caldwell noticed 
and noted that in his review for Robert Shotgun, he said, For Honor is like the least apt title ever. Because the main thing is that the way they've designed this thing with two players locking on is that if there are two enemies, you've got no chance of like, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a famous samurai and I can't. Because I don't know why. I love Samurais. Hanzo. No, you said that one. I've done that one. You said him. The other one. The point is, if there's two people who come at you, it's not like, oh, I will be very still. And then I'll (laughs) kill both of you. No, for a start, you've all all got health bars. For a second thing, you can only lock onto one person at once. So if there's two enemies, you're just fucked. Just game over. Literally, if there's two people, you should be getting out of there. If there's three, literally just turn and sprint away as fast as you can. Because you just get uh, the crap clubbed into you. Yeah. Which is potentially plausible, but like, it's not honorable, as the game <laughs> says. That's <laughs> fine. This was absolutely one of those games that I played being like, maybe I'll do a video and then played it and it was fine. I I mean, as I said earlier, like I've, I've now, I've tried to train myself into just looking at some games from afar and just being able to read between lines and just go, no. And Ubisoft actually, like, I just don't really bother with Ubisoft games. Ubisoft games always review very well and I don't think they're bad by any means. Um, they're just not for me. They're, they're, they're just, oh, that not. means you haven't been playing Dice X, which is good. That's not Ubisoft. Square Enix. I knew that. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I know I know slightly more about the ins and outs of this and you know more about the board game stuff. It's fine. But yeah, no, Deus Ex is, I mean, Ubisoft, uh, Square Enix have been a bit Ubisofty with some of their Western releases. But I mean, there's just something about the way, I was thinking about this recently, actually, and I, and I was getting into a mild argument with someone, the fact that I really liked 2008 Prince of Persia, which was the kind of slightly watercolory reboot they did um, after oh, the Sands of Time trilogy. Sun. Yes, I remember that one. And I quite enjoyed that. Uh, lots of people didn't, but I really enjoyed it as a really chilled out um, atmospheric story experience. Yes. But I find it fascinating looking back and seeing uh, some of the stuff that Ubisoft were doing around that area area, and about how they were trying with some of their products to push back from the busyness of like, what they've been doing. Uh, yeah, the open more... world, loads of subquests, lots of numbers pinging off all the time. Because there's always been two clear strands with, with what Ubisoft tried to achieve. Uh, and a part of it became that and became this like web of sequences and there's things to do because people like that stuff. But they also clearly had this uh, this expressive strand. And you see that in a lot of the Assassin's Creed games of them feeling like... I remember that, them talking about how like, oh yeah, the, the, the head was represented by you know, the triangle on the controller and then X was like your legs and this idea that your body was being represented by the controller. This is a theme that we go back to a lot, a bit like how the Idle Thumbs podcast always comes back to Far Cry 2. But for us, it's like the first Assassin's Creed is so... Well, you see, no, I don't agree with that. But but, but no, I think it's just that there was a, there was a, there was something they were trying to achieve there with like this simple, like simple expression. And I think that that Prince of Persia was like, it was quite ahead of its time in some ways. You know, it didn't it didn't really have a visible HUD a lot of the time, I think. It was just really clean, really simple, very easy in many ways. And just trying to have a game that was expressive and and not busy. And now I feel like Ubisoft have gone completely the other direction. And, yeah. and I just look at screenshots and I'm just like, oh my God, there's so much stuff on a screen. I mean, right? I remember, I mean, I don't know how much I've talked about Bushido Blade on this podcast, but if people don't know about one of the weirdest and best fighting games in all of video games history, Bushido Blade was a... Uh, 1v1 uh, PlayStation 1 fighting game for Samurai. Mm -hmm. You play this one? Uh, No. Okay, so it's like um, you have uh, different characters who might have, you know, swords or sledgehammers, um, but it had no HUD whatsoever. So you can run around this big 3D environment where you could fight in a castle or a bamboo field or whatever. Um, But there were no health bars because if you, what happened, what do you think happens if you get hit by a Samurai sword, right? Yeah. Um, But there could be glancing hits because video games need room for that. 
um, and they showed like a little s- small yellow flash on your character. But all that did is it slowed down that part of your body. So like you could you could get your arm injured enough that then you can't use your left arm. You can't use one of your feet, so you're down on your knees, so all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was interesting because, and it's an interesting counterpart to For Honor as like two very big games that spring to my mind to do with melee combat. But For Honor is so many buttons. It is so much to learn. It is so many counters. And if someone does a heavy attack, then you can parry it by pressing your own heavy attack at the last minute. You can grab them. You can grab them to a throw. Like, it, it, you have to learn 10 different things. And it's such a goddamn video game mm. in, like, the most tedious sense of the word. Um, whereas Bushido Blade was just so interesting because you pressed a button and that's what that button did. You know, if you if your sword is above you and it doesn't need to tell you if your opponent is holding their weapon up and they attack, then you need to block high because that is visible on the character model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And it was kind of interesting just how clean you could make something rather than just uh, systems that are all competing for your attention. Um, Yes, it felt weird and disappointing, I guess. Um, Not necessarily inaccurate as a martial arts game simulation, talking about For Honor here, but it's it's so... it's, It's the opposite almost that I... Well, an, was looking for an interesting thing, and to bring it back to kind of what you were talking about right at the start, is um, is how difficult I found it, and still find it from time to time, even though I'm getting better at it, to actually escape the gravity of um of the of the the, the marketing loops of video games. And I think it, it's interesting that now I've got good enough that I can just ignore some things. I can look at it and go, not for me. And that's not even like a slight on it. I just go, not for me. But it's interesting that you know you have found yourself looking at a Ubisoft game in the hope of finding something to talk about. It's, it's fascinating to me, and I, I, it's a massive dissonant point for me in the fact that I know that video games are this incredible broad spectrum of things. I know there are niches doing amazing things. I know there are... They, I, I get frustrated with video games doing the same things and being boring and being like... Uh, but then I still end up gravitating back to the same beats and being like, when there's a new big thing, I check it out. And it's like, I'm so much better now at not doing that than I used to. And I'm getting better at not buying stuff at launch either. I'm just like, well, I'm going to buy a few. I mean, I've just, I'm not going to talk about it now because I've just made on for time. And also I made a video about it and then we played it a bit of co-op. You can go and watch both these videos on coolghost.net about Hyperlight Drifter. And like, it's a fantastic game, but I didn't buy it and play it at launch. I bought it and played it a month ago. And the advantage of that are... Well, actually, in that case, huge, because they actually had updated the game so much in the months after <laughs> launch that it was just it's a remarkably better game now. Yes. But also, yeah, it's like, even though I know damn well that it's like, this is not how you do it. You do not just keep checking out things at launch day. You do not just keep doing launch previews and launch. You do not get involved with that hype cycle because it's just a cycle of disappointment. You've got nothing to gain from it. The, you've got nothing to gain from it. Exactly. No one does. It's not good for anyone. Like when you can recommend games that came out a year and a half ago, especially now the technology curves have changed so much that things are just not getting hugely better all the time anyway it's better to review stuff that came out last year that people can get cheaply or maybe already have and haven't looked at that much um but at the same time even though i know all of this stuff the gravity is real and escaping velocity from these cycles is money is is very difficult i mean we live in a capitalist society like this is what everyone like everyone in the games industry wants you to buy new things Mm -hmm. so including like you know the journalists who review the damn things yeah yeah so it is yeah, but I just find that interesting, and I, I think it's just I find it interesting that even though I talk the talk on this stuff and I say do this, do that, I'm still bad at it. I still get sucked in, and it's taken me maybe two years of actually focusing and concentrating and not looking at video game websites anymore, and just completely cutting off that part of my brain to just get away from these bloody cycles of of, the, of eventually 
just led me to repeatedly to disappointment. Speaking of playing stuff too early, you and I did a video on Subnautica. We did. <laughs> a while back. That is in early access, not even finished yet. That's how much we are playing into the hype. I cycle. know. And again, it's like, I really, I can't wait for it to come out. Oh my God, it's the best game. And now we have Charlie Cleveland, who is the... Uh, he works on the case. <laughs> and uh, we asked him some cool questions. Stop. I'd like to ask a game developer five questions. This time on Five Questions, we've got Charlie Cleveland, game director on Subnautica. The first question, can you name us something you're hugely proud of from a game that you made that most people wouldn't notice? So in Subnautica, we have a still suit because a lot of people were kind of complaining that there was, you know, the, the hunger and thirst was too much and it was impeding the exploration. So we added a still suit because it's from Dune and that's the best book ever. But um, the still suit gives you water every so often. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a graphic designer or anything for that artwork. So I was making the icons. And so every so often when you're wearing a still suit, it just puts some water into your inventory. And I just, for some reason, just tinted the water in the water yellow, just like a tiny, tiny bit of yellow, because we all know that the still suit actually is urine. And, you know, when you click, when you click things in the game to, to consume them, I thought it was really funny, like a little joke that you're consuming urine, but no one seemed to notice. I don't really know why. I mean, we know what a still suit is, right? But uh, I was expecting something, but I, was, I couldn't stop laughing. I thought it was the most hilarious thing in the world. What's your favorite game, and what is the one thing that you would change about it? Cosmic Encounter is basically my favorite game, although I do have a few favorite games, but they're all tied with Cosmic. And Cosmic's one problem, and it's a big one, it's such a glaring problem to me, is the flare cards. I have no idea why that game has flares. They're confusing. You know, they have like the two rules, one on top, one on bottom. Like if you're the alien race with that power or if you're not, and it just makes the game more random. And it's like it lengthens the setup because you have to like go through the deck and shuffle them in. I just have no idea why it's there. They should just, just be removed. What in the world makes you so excited right now that you want to loudly tell everyone about it? Game-wise, I would say that's Heroes of the Storm. And I've never really understood why people like MOBAs until I played Heroes of the Storm. And to me, that takes out all the crap that I just detest in other MOBAs. And it just puts the focus on the team and uh, you know, none of the items, none of the, none of the other you know, lengthy playtime you know, downsides, none of that junk. So Heroes of the Storm. The problem is that it's actually not doing very well. I mean, I've heard that it's uh, like barely breaking even. So that's why I want to loudly tell everyone about it. And there's some other things I like to tell people about politically, but I really don't feel like talking about it. What was the last game you played that reinforced your passion for the medium and why? So, yeah, this is something I'm actually struggling, struggling with right now. Just like I've been making games for like 20 years now and I'm not really, you know, sometimes I, I have difficulty being passionate about it. And especially after a lengthy game development, and I've had a couple big ones, like Natural Selection 2 was eight years. But um, so recently I started playing Overwatch. And that game, besides being just a brilliant entry into, into you know, the world of shooters, 
the world and the fiction of that universe and those cutscenes, like all the little promotional videos they've done, they are so beautiful. They, some of them actually made me tear up. That's how beautiful they were. They have so much heart. And to me, that is so wonderful because it's a game that, you know, it's a, it's a quote unquote violent game, but they basically like move all the, you know, they, they don't focus on the violence at all. They focus on the heart, at least in the promotional stuff. But they, they you know, reinforce that while you're playing all the time with the characters talking to each other and the locales that you're playing in. And it just puts a giant smile on my face. To me, it's, um, it's like if Pixar made a shooter, then they would maybe they would come out with Overwatch. And I just think it's absolutely wonderful. And finally, who in the industry would you most like to hear answer these questions and why? Probably Danny Buntenberry who was a pretty legendary uh, multiplayer video game designer who unfortunately died in the late 90s. Um, I think she had lung cancer. But um, before then, she was a he, and she made Mule and Seven Cities of Gold, uh, Command HQ, which is arguably the first real-time strategy game ever made, invented the genre, definitely before Warcraft. Um, and the reason why I would like to hear her is she was such a visionary. And I mean, not only because she was transgender, I mean, that was like a, a pretty amazing thing back then for her to, to come to the Game Developers Conference. And, you know, one year she's a man, next year she's a woman and just was totally unapologetic. And it was just wonderful. And of course, we don't have a lot of women in the industry. So that was really wonderful. But above all that, she was just such a visionary. I mean, she barely wrote anything. I think she has one talk from the conference that's been recorded, but her little scrawlings that you can scrape up around the internet still give me inspiration because she, you know, at the end of the day, she wanted to make games that connect people. So, you know, she would talk about how legends must grow, you know, and that, like, no one else talks like that when they're making multiplayer games. They're usually talking about, like, depth and balance and genre and all this junk. Um, and then something I just found out, uh, which I had no idea until just until I was uh, Googling her uh, for this interview, is that she actually um, didn't, she actually had one of the version of her mule game, she had it canceled because she refused to add bombs and guns to it, which I had never known, but that was actually something that motivated me for Subnautica. Uh, I really did not want to have another violent game. You know, I don't believe that video games cause violence, but I just didn't want another game with more guns. Not when the U.S. is having a huge violence problem. I just couldn't bear to do it. So that's yet another reason why I would love to hear what she would say about games that reinforce her passion and what makes her excited about games in the world. Well, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, an incredible touching tribute there to Danny Burtonberry, um, which oh, was somebody I'd never heard of. But uh, yeah, incredible story. I'm definitely going to go and look up more about her. Yeah, uh, of course, Lee does a lot of these. Um, she has a video series called Lo-Fi Let's Plays where she goes back and plays old um, Apple oh, yeah, of course. games. Um, but uh, that's interesting because she ends up being uh, brought into contact with names and luminaries who are making amazing games throughout the 80s and who have just been absolutely forgotten. Yeah. And I mean, that ties back into what you were talking about in terms of the, the when you're done with the industry, there's no golden handshake. It's it's fascinating that everybody feels like they're saying things for the first time and you just, all you have to do is go back 20 years and people are having the same conversations. Yeah. Even again, proven there when 
you know, Danny Burtonberry not wanting to mule to be that was violent. A, what what an unbelievable thing, and what a great way to to carry on her legacy to then just refuse to do it in Subnautica. That's so great. Yeah, I think that was unrelated. I mean, because I think he only found this out um, as he was researching this. And oh no, but he said, didn't he? Say, I no, he I think he, he he basically gone through the same. I think because he said he found that out when he was googling her. For oh this. right, 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 right. So it's a, again, it's the same thing of you know being in a similar place now, but people have been there before. It's kind of good in some ways. It's kind of that you realise that it's very easy in video games to feel like we're living at the cutting edge and that everything is new when actually you think, no, like a lot of this stuff in different forms, in different shapes are, are kind of patterns or loops we've, we've been through before. Oh, completely. Uh, Lee, actually, to take it back, even again to her, I found a hilarious, depressing thing where um, uh, she found out that there was a woman who wrote, she yeah. writes about digital culture, right? Yeah, yeah. She found this book called like Surfing the Web, which was written in like 95 but was uh, talking about like uh, this woman like using early um, sort of community groups and hanging out on the internet when it was like really the Wild West. The cover of the book is like someone really surfing a cyber wave. Yeah. But this is a woman who Lee had never heard of and who was also mixed race and like ha- whose career paralleled Lee's like almost identically. Yeah. And so it was it was almost like looking into a weird mirror for her and being like you know like what how was this woman forgotten why why have I never heard of her? Um, very unsettling stuff. Yeah, it but, is. Uh, but yeah, super. It's funny to funny that I, we had no idea that Charlie was also like uh, towards the end of the long development cycle with Subnautica and also struggling with his feelings about video games. It's almost getting creepy now, isn't it? How uh, every time we listen back, because we we try and listen back to the questions firsthand um, when we record, so it's fresh and we can have a conversation. But in both two for two now. It's been there's been some real parallels there. Yeah, and plus I found, I thought it was really interesting there to get an additional perspective on Overwatch, um, which something that you and I weren't really feeling because yeah. um, just mechanically we didn't think it was a, an enormously interesting uh, mass multiplayer online arena type thing. But no, he's right. I did really yeah. As much as the character designs aren't for me, I did really appreciate his point that. It's a world with a lot of heart. You travelled the world in Overwatch. The characters are all being friendly. Although, I will take him up on his point that if Pixar made a shooter, it would be Overwatch because I think Splatoon is already absolutely... Yeah, maybe. Uh, ...that game. I think, no, I'm, it's interesting, actually. Like Overwatch is not for me. And again, when I talked about earlier how I felt frustration, uh, that everyone was banging on about it so much, I do realise now, and I, I do kind of know at the time, that in a way, the fact that mechanically it's not that like in-depth and there's not that much... That's partially the point. Yes, of course. It's the point is that it's supposed to be a different experience. It's supposed to be an experience that you can just enjoy with friends. And I realised that basically it's just that I don't really play games like that. And lots of people are having an amazing time with it because of the heart, because they play it with their friends. And it's like the way that the two can merge. You can have this nice experience with these characters that then reflects on your friendships and becomes a part of your friendship groups like you and your dynamic. friends are being friends and controlling friends who are friends even it's with like the, the most tear bearsy thing in the world but with guns <laughs> and that's awesome uh, but i also realized that increasingly i don't when i'm playing games i'm like i don't gel with it and i think because to go back you know i was talking about cosmic uh, i think it's because for me like i don't do that with video games it's i don't get that that's partly because i don't have a friendship group that all plays video games and all goes online and plays video games every night anymore i used to when i was younger haven't for a long time but also I think it's if I want to have that experience where I'm having uh, a game which is really about friendship and connections, I, I play board games. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, I think it's really cool that video games are doing that because for a long time people have asked that question and being like, hey, how can video games engender this sort of thing? And I think it's interesting that that happened and I didn't clock it straight away. I just played a video game that was a shooter and thought this isn't very good. Mm. And now in the month since talking to people about it, I'm like, ah, oh, it's here. Yeah, it's the friends of mine who play Rainbow Six Siege as well uh, do it as a big friendly gun group, uh, so, which is more understandable. 
Yeah. There's some lovely, lovely answers there. And I particularly enjoyed, actually, the first one, just the fact that you've got people drinking piss and nobody notices. <laughs> uh, I noticed because that is a wonderful, disturbing bit of Dune that they are constantly recycling their own piss. And But the, all the characters are so nice and philosophical in that book that nobody cares because they have bigger concerns, <laughs> like being a good human being. And worms. worms. I don't care. Worms I'm going to enjoy my warm, pissy drink. And think about these bloody worms. I tell you what, man. If people are listening to this and haven't read Dune, then the first half of that book is one of the greatest fantasy novels ever. And then you can sort of maybe get halfway through and then when you get a bit bored, put it down and... Watch the film? Well, the film... Stupidly, the film has exactly the same problem because um, the, the, the David Lynch Dune film is actually kind of interesting because um, uh, David Lynch made an amazing... Was working his way through the edit chronologically. And mm. the first hour of the Dune movie is so good. And they got bored. Well, no. Then they looked at it and said, how long will the edit be? And it looked, because he was working through the footage, if he kept going at that pace, he would be like three or four hours long, would be the man, final edit. Man. And they went, what are you doing? Get out of the edit suite, David Lynch. We will edit the rest of the film. And that's why the rest of the film is garbage. You know, if only, like, they could have known. If only David Lynch could have gone, wait, 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 wait. In the future, in like multiple 30 years, films. In 30 years, we could split this up into four bits, put it on Netflix, and it'll be David Lynch's Dune, a four-hour, like six-hour. Imagine that. Like, if actually these auteur filmmakers, were, instead of the studio being like, no, get out, <laughs> just went, all right, well, but I suppose it's because film worked differently. You didn't have digital copies of stuff. You actually had to cut stuff. And, yeah. You know, you couldn't just be like, all right, well, you make your version. And I mean, obviously, we do have that with director's cuts, but... In cases like that, when it's like, oh my God, no, this is like six hour thing. There's no way we can <laughs> director's cut crunch is such this a down. Weird, silly term, because I feel like the director had a cut and it was the first cut. So like, because, you know, yeah. it's the director and the director has the final control over I the I guess it kind of points out the fact that directors don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, This is the right one I wanted are. to make, but it wasn't allowed. A- anyway, my point is that the Dune, David Lynch movie and the Dune novel are both- And sometimes that's good things though. worth watching for the first half of the film. Because I watched Apocalypse Now Redux the first time I watched Apocalypse it's too Now. too long. It's fucking, it goes on forever. I'll tell you what's not too long. If you watch the uh, four hour cut of Das Boot- that's not too long. It's not too long. Uh, but I found this out. I've been watching some long movies and uh, I watched a seven hour movie called Satan Tango. That's not a movie. That's a, something else. I, yeah, I'll tell you why. It was something else. I wouldn't recommend we watch Satan Tango. But funny thing about when you watch the four hour dust boot or seven hour Satan Tango, you find out that um, it's not. So you get bored about, you want to move about 90 minutes into a movie, right? Yeah. Um. You're not getting bored 90 minutes into the movie. What I found out is you get bored 75% of the way through the movie for structural reasons. Um, when I was, I got, I got bored seven hour, 75% into a seven hour movie, which was like five hours in. Yeah. And same with Das Boot. It's not that two hours is too long. It's, a, it's all about editing and pacing. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I found that with, um, with video, like um, you can have a video, which is five minutes long. That it I've feels made, too long. And it feels too long. You can have a video, which is like 20 minutes long. And that's why I'm, I don't really worry anymore about how long a video I'm making ends up being. Just make sure it's tight. But it's funny, like the Hyperlight Drifter video I put up the other day, I went back and re-encoded it um, because I, I just, I went through and just checked it to check there weren't any major errors in it before. And I just had one bit about four minutes in where it was like a shot that didn't change for about a minute. And I was like, no. And it was amazing how immediately it went from being this really pacey, nippy thing to just being like, I'm bored. And I mean, that says a lot to do with the way that human brains work now, but if you cannot keep people engaged uh, both audio, with audio and visuals and having uh, changes in pace every 10, 15 seconds, then immediately something goes from feeling long to feeling nothing. And I found that when we've done stuff really well in the past, which occasionally we have, we've had videos which are like half an hour, but you can just sit and watch a half an hour thing and it feels like five minutes. Yes. But 
it's a lot of work. <laughs> and doing that in a film, I don't know if I could do that. I probably could, but I suppose, yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on to... Oh, no. Stepping on your childhood. Don't step on my childhood. So... Um, we it wasn't really fair this time because we played a game that you weren't that invested in anymore. No, I absolutely am in as much as I am in Listen, you. So we played Dizzy, Prince of the Yoke Folk. Yes. Which Americans might not know is part of a long-running, a, a saga. Egg saga. Were, an egg, egg-based saga of uh, <laughs> sort of point-and-click platformers. Well, I mean, it was mainly platformy, wasn't it, to begin with? With puzzles. You pick up items. Use was that always a thing? Because I know I played in the other ones. Yes, it was. Okay. It, you always potted around picking up items and using them on things. Um, you're an egg, and you're battling... Uh, sort of Is that not clear? ...evil wizards. And I... When you say you're battling evil wizards, that... Adds it suggests an air of dynamism which is not present. Dizzy has had within the series he's battle- ri- he's ridden minecarts, <laughs> he's run away from wasps. He <laughs> the, has- the wasp thing is clearly a sticking point for you, as you mentioned in the video. You you have a fear of wasps. So I wanted to revisit Dizzy because I have a memory of playing this game over and over and over easy. Kids again. like over easy, I like that. Kids don't have a lot on, do they? No, is a thing. So, like, for me, you see Please Don't Step in My Childhood as an opportunity to um, sort of, like, go back and see if these games are still good. I guess I kind of misinterpreted it, and I will pick a good game, <laughs> because for me, this was like visiting the prison cell I used to live in when I was a kid. Because I would... But, but that I would sort of contentedly play over and over. I think it's fine. I think we, we, we can be fluid about this. And I think, I mean, really, it's not necessarily about us stamping on each other's necks until one of us uh, taps out. I think it, <laughs> it's, it can just be like looking at things. And I think I found it fascinating to look at it again because it is a strange relic. I was startled. But I'll tell you one thing we actually can talk about. The point-and-click games that have legacy, the, um, uh, you know, the Tim Schafer and the Ron Gilbert stuff, uh-huh. um, like Monkey Island and Day of the Tentacle, are so effing hard yeah right they are just willfully obtuse and annoying you know you have to win the uh spitting competition by waiting until the clouds in the background of monkey island are scudding across the screen at the right angle so you can spit far enough that's a real puzzle yeah i remember that yeah and it's just like oh use whatever yeah anyway um so um what I was surprised by when we went back and played Dizzy was to find a puzzle game which was easy. Mm. Turns out that not all uh, sort of point-and-click adventure game type stuff had to be difficult, which I found kind of a revelation. Also, like, I mean, the other thing that we forget is that, um, as I found out when I was having to research it for the for the TV show I did a few years ago, like the, the thing about Monkey Island, which was revolutionary, was you couldn't die. Like that was revolutionary at the time. And in fact, there were a, few, a, a point in the game where you fell off a cliff. And it was like game over. But then like you bounced up and it was like, oh, I fell on a rubber tree. It's like a dumb joke. But (laughs) that you couldn't die was new because in point and click games prior to that. And I remember playing some of them. I played some of the old Kyrandia games. Fucking horrendous things. Oh, all the Zork games as well. Well, Zork, I kind of have more love for because they were genuinely funny. Whereas Kyrandia felt like it was like... How much older are you than me? uh, Only a year, I think. Okay. But I didn't play the early Zork games. I ended up playing some of the later ones and then going back to the earlier ones. Because I loved Zork Grand Inquisitor, a genuinely funny FMV game. Like, it had a lot of, like, real actors doing stuff. And it had, it was funny. Like, I mean, it might not be as funny now, but I remember the, the humour beats and the jokes and the deliveries being actually quite strong. Um, and, uh, yeah. But you forget now that this idea of having a, a game where you can fail um, and have puzzles in it. Like, you were 
getting screwed over Sorry. by... Uh, yeah, I was getting screwed over by jumping puzzles. Yeah, it's funny. I think there's been, like, not not lasting damage, but there's definitely a shift in the way that um, the games industry at present remembers um, uh, point-and-click games. Um, because I think it, it it's quite, not necessarily masculine, but um, very comedic-based. When I, when, when I talk about point-and-click and we talk about the classics being uh, Monkey yeah. Island and stuff, um, I think... It, it was really interesting to me recently to play go back and play a game called Loom. Mm-hmm. You remember Loom? I do. So Loom is interesting because it is not a comedy game. It no. is. It's the same. I think it, it might even be the Scum Engine. I'm- it was. It was a. It came out I think just before Monkey Island. Um, maybe after, but I remember there was cross promotion. I think it must have come out. I can't remember. But I remember that there was a character in the bar in the Scum Bar um, who had a badge. One of the pirates had a badge that said, "Ask me about Loom," <laughs> and you could say. <laughs> What's this about Loom? And it would go, ah. And it was basically an advert. It would have the character would then tell you about the game Loom. So I don't know if it was like, I don't know, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's just, um, I guess my point is that if you go back and play Loom, what's startling is that um, it's a designer trying to do something that is like genuinely beautiful. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of imagery of, of birds and crazy lights and spells. Strange and, and beautiful. sounds. Yeah, it was, it was a lot more surreal, but... Um, uh, it came from a really good place in the designer of just wanting to craft something truly magical, like another realm for you to go and visit. Matt and I have it open in Google Images yeah, now. Yeah, just looking at the colours. And yeah, the- and I th- I don't know. I think it's, um, it's I guess what I'm saying is that um, while it's great to put certain games on pedestals and praise them, as we rightfully should, because the Monkey Island games were very funny. I played them a lot as a kid. Made me laugh a lot. Um, but also, the more you raise up certain games, the more you forget other games that um, I guess happened at the same time. You're right. Time. The formula has been, yeah, the blueprint has has been held aloft so high that it's blocking out, it's casting shadows on a lot of stuff behind it. Yeah, that's and I guess you've got like you know um, uh, Ron Gilbert coming back with Thimbleweed Park, and it's very traditional that sort of me, yeah, Ron Gilbert, Monkey Island. Of course, he's going to be doing the same thing. He's the same guy. Yes, but that's what you're right. People go, that's what Point and Click was, and I mean, one of the Point and Click games that I never actually got hugely far with but imprinted deeply on me was The Dig remember The Dig oh yes it was a LucasArts it was another LucasArts one but it was trying to be a little bit more photorealistic in a way like slightly less cartoony it wasn't photorealistic but it was trying to be a little bit more adult and it was people it was a weird sci-fi thing about digging on a planet and discovering kind of alien artifacts and having people in your crew suddenly behaving weirdly. And <laughs> it was really creepy and it was really, at times, atmospherically, I found as a child quite scary. Yeah, I, th- I guess it's like um, certain games are always going, you're going to leave any era of video games with certain games being very influential, but I, I always can't help but think about how the games industry would be different if you took a different selection of games. Um, like, So imagine if rather than uh, Monkey Island and Day of the Tentacle mm-hmm. emerging from the um, the adventure game era. Yeah, you choose Loom. And- what if we had um, Dig and like um, it came from the desert? If it, So do you, know, do you know that one? I don't. It came from the desert is um, a adventure game where you uh, arrive in a desert town and essentially there's a conspiracy about where there are giant, enormous ants, like Earth Defense Force-sized ants that right. are going to devour this town. And there was death in it in that classic adventure game style, but you would replay it, and then the goal is essentially to warn or warn the town about the ants or defeat the ants somehow. But you've got this Groundhog Day style thing where the game begins with you rolling into a town, which included like criminals who would you know try and run you off the road and stuff. This weird Arizona town, and then you would fail to tell people about the ants, but then you try again and reload, and this time I'll tell you. Very very weird, very disturbing, huh. very affecting. But um, absolutely the polar opposite of something like Monkey Island, which is just this friendly and yet sort of annoying jaunt through yeah. completely inscrutable puzzles. 
Dizzy was interesting because the puzzles were solvable. I think that is just such a weird fly in the ointment to, to the way that I thought about adventure games. I think it is and it isn't. I think what's interesting about that is the fact that they clearly, even at that point, before there was a solution, people had, had started to, or maybe it was around the same time, actually. I'm not hot enough on my calendars here. But, I mean, when Monkey Island was like, all right, so you can't die, that's that was a solution to the problem. Yes. It's too hard, whereas Dizzy had gone the other way of being like, being like maybe they've gone the other way but it was like well how do we make it I don't it's think like, Dizzy was that difficult it's like you know you can die you kind of have to start again which is kind of annoying but the puzzles themselves don't represent difficulty now they represent flavour sure but uh, try this on for size then that, like we think that we're very high minded now because we've got this whole idea of the walking simulator mm-hmm. of like you know whether you're, you know, Proteus or, uh, you know, gone home, the idea that maybe there isn't a puzzle. Maybe you just walk through the experience. Wow, aren't we clever in 2015 or whatever? Um, but maybe this always existed in games and we just lost our way for a while. Maybe games like Dizzy, trying desperately to make my pick of the game this month relevant. Um, but no, maybe games like Dizzy were, had a level of difficulty which was so smooth and easy for people that people could tumble through a game of Dizzy in a couple of days. Um, that we just kind of lost and that suddenly adventure games and or games in general had to be difficult and challenging and long. And then now we've got the walking simulator as a consequence of that. I think era. an interesting reflection of that though is what what gets taken from the walking simulator? What what's it gonna be? Like is it is it gonna be like uh Stanley Parable or is it gonna be Dear Esther? You know, it's like that's that's what does that genre represent in people's minds in ten years? Oh god. Years? Well the walking simulator is weird because it is a postmodern reflection of video games if you take like portal and stanley parable as the things that it are as the games we take away from this era then what we're going to end up with is post-modern, like post-modern. something that we make we made fun of like, do you remember that time we used to make fun of video games haha <laughs> as opposed to if we take something like uh life is strange and you know night of the woods and dear esther or whatever then potentially this could have a massively different effect on games and now we get into something really important which is to, to bring us back full circle to the beginning of the podcast, this is why the role of the critic is so important. Yeah. Because you, I mean, if we include YouTube now within the sphere, which is annoying because YouTubers in general, I don't think, feel a great deal of conscientiousness towards driving games as a medium forward. I mean, they're so busy. I don't think we time to think about anything. Right. Um, whereas, you know, we write articles and spend a lot of time drinking in, t- in pubs and talking about why we're important. Um, so <laughs> too much I think I'm trying to cut back for 2017 sure um, like every night just like four hours blocked out but this is an example of why it's important these games do get forgotten about if we don't discuss them and I think actually weirdly like when we were playing Dizzy it kind of in a weird way it's like Neo is is, is so similar because it's this <laughs> Neo to Dizzy here we go it, it really is because like you look at Neo and it's just it's like a mixture of things like you've got like Diablo loot, you've got Dark Souls things. It's like it feels like when I said it feels like nothing, it feels like an evolutionary, not a stopgap. You know, we're at this point, and I think sometimes this is one of the reasons that we don't talk about very often why people often get into a bit of a malaise with games because we are actually in a rut. Like we are experiencing a a rut of ideas, and it will we will get out of it. But at the moment there's a bit of freewheeling, and what I find fascinating about Dizzy is it is. It's so much easier to identify why it was freewheeling in a rut because there was so many less strands of DNA in games, which there are now tons, like so many different directions, so many things pulling off. You can see tiny flecks of influence. But back then, it's like Dizzy, this weird thing. It's like, it's kind of a platformer game. It's kind of a point and click. 
And also, it's still got things like cherries and stars that you collect. It's I was going to say this. DNA of arcade games. It was games. so weird to play a point-and-click adventure game where we have to get the items and save the princess who's asleep in a castle. Uh, but also, there were just cherries we could pick up to increase our score, which is absolutely like, if you yeah. follow that DNA across 30 years, it becomes like Assassin's Creed Collect 100 Flags. Yeah, you've got like, you've got, exactly, you've got dialogue, you've got puzzles that aren't really puzzles, you've got a bit of jumping, and then you've got like, collect cherries. And it's this weird like, middle <laughs> ground of being like, well, this is kind of where games are going, so it's a bit like that. But this is where kind of games are, so there's a bit of that. And then this is what games still are and there must have been a period around that time where it's like people would be like well, you're not putting fucking cherries in your game that you can collect and get points that's insane like you've got to put the cherries in and now that to us that seems cra- like crazy but in the same way you know I'm playing Neo and it's like yeah of course you can like get loot and there's different colours and the purple ones are the best and you can crunch it down for, for it's like of course which is like the sort of thing where I think in like 20 years time people are going to be like what the fuck is this about like what's all why those, do I have so much why do I have loot? loads of purple Hats. Like, and I think that's why uh, I think Final Fantasy 15 might end up aging really badly. Yeah. Because if you look at, you know, the other Final Fantasies, then you are pottering around the world, you're fighting monsters, you're following a plot thread. They've all aged badly in their own way, but yeah. Kind of, yes and no, but at least they are coherent objects. Yes. Like Final yes. Fantasy 7, as much as I don't buy into the hype as much as everyone else, Final Fantasy 7 kind of knew what it was doing. It was a journey around a world, full stop. You know, whereas Final Fantasy 15 is journey back and forth across a world and doing a lot of side quests. I think the fascinating difference between them is that Final Fantasy 15 has been in development for ages where rumours, well, people say that Final Fantasy 7 was a year of development, start to finish. Really? Which, which I find so believable because it's messy in such a different way. Oh, God, that's interesting. No, it makes that's, so much that's sense. So, because at least it knows what it is. Yeah. There's no time for Final Fantasy 7 to get confused. It doesn't always express that to you, but like... No. Well, it's so full of mad stuff, like the bit where you defend the the castle with the Fort Condor. Fort Condor, like it (laughs) constantly. It's like snowboarding minigame. It's exactly, (laughs) it's exactly the same as Final Fantasy XV in so many ways. The difference is that all of these weird offshoots and mad things have unbelievable levels of time and detail poured into. That's why, like, you have like photorealistic chicken katsu curries. Like, if it was made in the Final Fantasy VII style, you'd still have the chicken katsu curry, but it would be like rubbish. But that it would be the same idea. So I kind of feel it's like a bit sad for me with that game because it, it's the same scrappiness, but like infinite amount more well, time and I money. I mean, yeah, I think the, but the problem with time and money is that then if you have Final Fantasy VII this year in development, that is like two writers in a room and they have to write the every piece of dialogue and item description in the game in a year, fine. They Done. bashed it out. They can do that. They fucked it all the time. Like lots of conversations in Final Fantasy VII that are bad, bad jokes, conv- cutscenes that don't quite convey what's I happening. I can't remember the site that's done it, but there's been a site that has done loads of, in- and maybe Polygon has done a massive in-depth amount of stuff about Final Fantasy VII recently and interviews. And one of the wonderful thing is the two lead people who are like heroes and people look at this game as being like, oh, it's perfect. They slaved over it. And they're just like, yeah, you wanted to like kill off like more characters. You wanted to kill off all the characters <laughs> like at a point in the game. You wanted to kill off like half of them. And the other guy's like, did I? Yeah, but <laughs> like, this they is don't my even point. remember. They're but just this like, is, this well, is we exactly what I'm saying. It, it's know. still one or two people going, should we do this with this character? Whereas Final Fantasy 15 feels like there were 14 writers working exactly. on it. One exactly. person did the radio plays and had this job. One person did the car dialogue. None of them were talking to each other. None of them knew when they were allowed to do stuff with the characters. Probably of those 14 writers, Half of them really understood what the characters were supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, that's how you end up accidentally putting out a game without character development. <laughs> yeah. Just being like, dude, I thought you were going to do that. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's absolutely it. Um, yeah, so it's just, I find, but I find like when things are scrappily thrown together quickly, I find them really charming and lovable. When I can see that 
there's been like freewheeling for years and teams shifting around and ideas changing. I just find it sad. I find it, 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 it rather making me laugh rather than enjoying the scrappiness in a kind of like jokey way. I feel like to me, the 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 energy, the misplaced energy and the going in circles just makes me feel a bit melancholic. Yeah, well, I'll do a proper plug for this then since we've been talking about all designers a lot, just as a final point. Um, if people would like to see and they are in games that's very different, very thought-provoking, then they should go and watch Lee's uh, Lo-Fi Let's yeah, Plays. Yeah, no, they're great. So you can Google just Lee Alexander and Lo-Fi Let's Plays. And I, this week, just I'd say, maybe go with them for this reason. And the reason is, it's an era of games when games were one person. Like, often one person doing the art and the puzzles and the writing. And just as like Matt and I were saying with Final Fantasy VII, a fun thing about that is that... Um, uh, it means that whatever you encounter in the game, it's like a message from the designer to you, as opposed to just this monolithic game that is made by a bunch of people with different ideas and goals and and leadership structures. No, it's one person. Yeah. So playing uh, a old Apple IIe game from the eighties is like it's it's a window into that person's creativity. It's like it's actually a lot of um I haven't used this line for ages, but it's one of the reasons board games inter- board games are interesting because a uh, shrink wrapped board game is one person's vision and nothing has gotten in the way of that. Mm. Whereas if I want to design a, a, a fancy video game, then I have to tell my vision to a coder and the coder has to tell an artist. Blah, blah, blah. So, and it, it's, so board games and also these old games from the 80s are lossless. Mm. Which, I mean, someone has a vision and then you play it. We're getting a lot of that back though. It still exists. It's just, the, the, as I've found, like, oh, of course. the level of work you need to put in to make stuff is just obscene. Yeah. Like, so, no. Um, <laughs> and finally, we will wrap up by asking a few questions. Yes, um, question time. Oh, let's go. Question time. Hello there. Why don't you relax? Take off those shoes. It's time for a question from you. If this is your first episode of the Daft Souls podcast, uh, hey, thanks for listening. You're great. Um, And also, we have a funny way of doing questions whereby we have a questions thread on coolghosts.net. If you click on the big button that says Daft Souls, um, we've got a comment thread. People can ask questions in the comment thread. They can upvote and downvote each other's questions. It's uh, like a shark tank, but intelligent sharks. Uh, Matt, what have our intelligent sharks got to say this week? I think I may have just learned something, actually. One second, let oh. me have a look. Um, okay, no, that doesn't exist. Um, one second. So, the top question currently is... Oh, no, hang on, no. What the hell? Let me just... Cool, no, ignore that. Okay, top question at the moment is uh, from Hamport Bacon. He says, why would you waste money on coolghost.com when you could clearly have a superior coolghost.cool? <laughs> Which is genuinely amazing. All of these random uh, additional .com options only appeared a little bit after we made this, but I think we went for coolghost.net because it sounded like the most dated thing in the world. It, <laughs> it, it reminded me of GeoCities. And uh, one of the key things... Uh, coolghosts.biz. Exactly. Like, uh, I mean, this is proper inside baseball, but one of the, the key things we really cared about and deeply when we were putting together Cool Ghost was ensuring that no way did it ever seem at any level like we thought we were actually being cool? <laughs> like, it's it's very much... Uh, t- we wrote the name Cool Ghosts as fans of Nathan Barley as opposed to characters in Nathan Barley. Yeah, so it, it, we needed the ghosts to look slightly odd and, and like they... They were like they thought they were cool, but, but they actually weren't. were creepy. Does, and one of them, does one of them still have uh, aviators on? 
No, I think we cut the aviators. Aviators were part of one of the original designs and they just looked too cool. Like, they didn't, we didn't want them to look cool. We wanted them to look weird. And that's why coolghost.net. It, it seems like the sort of website that might be put together by someone's dad, um, which is a joke that really only people of our specific demographic will probably clock. But um, yeah, I find it funny when people are like, hey, why don't you get .com? It's like, yeah, it's fine. No, it's fine. Um, next up, we've got a question here from Eric Tenglad. Of course, uh, we know Derek is a good man. And um, he says, it seems these days, every second game that is released is either a remake, a HD remaster, or a classic re-release of a game that originally came out on one or several consoles generations ago. Disregarding the fact that these releases are often stopgap solutions to allow devs and publishers to generate income while they work on bigger projects, do you think there's inherent value in sprucing up older games for new generation of players who might not have been able to play them the first time around? Or should devs use that time to create new and original titles instead i think uh the first thing i said to that is that they don't have the option of creating new and original titles i think a lot of developers right now and publishers are in the position where a lot of the games they that were making money for them five ten years ago are not making money anymore um we are floating on the edge of a of a market crash if not uh you know in one right now um a lot of remakes and sequels are being made purely because they're the first they they make money i've heard yeah exciting games you wouldn't believe um failing to make money like um the first dragon age i heard and the first mass effect i think yeah no that was a classic thing everybody um really criticized ea because they weren't doing anything interesting and so they did something really interesting and they put out in the same year they put out mass effect dragon age dead space and i think um, and some other stuff mirror's edge i think yeah most of them if not all of them bombed yes Um, Uh, but (laughs) even if they sold quite well they just couldn't recoup the investment So, but you you then make the money back on doing heavy exactly. merchandising and sequels. And so everyone goes, oh, another one. It's like, guys, they did what you asked for and it was a terrible idea. So let them do what they're doing. Yes. So I don't think, as much as I would love, obviously, for designers to be making new stuff all the time. I've said this before. Like, as, I, It really bums me out when everyone's like, oh, Dark Souls, oh, Miyazaki making more Dark Souls. Yes, more Dark Souls, please, Mr. Miyazaki. It's like, it's no, like, let the dude make something new. Yeah. He made Dark Souls. What else is in his brain? Let it... Let exactly. him put the other ideas out. It's, uh, but I mean, this is this is a, a wider problem within the whole games industry. Is the way that that often um, uh, uh, people are are convinced that the the interests of consumers are parallel to to what people are doing and that publishers are doing. So they kind of feel like everyone's like a sequel. That's what you want. When actually, it's like it's it's not. Well, it is what people want. It's, it's what, what sells, buy. and it's what. But yeah, it's what sells. It's what makes money. But it's it's not. The idea that this is like really what, you know, when you've got developers being like, oh yeah, we're pumped for another one. In many ways, they will be pumped, especially if you've not had a successful game or even a released game for many years. Then, you know, having a success and being able to continue to work on something is great. But at the same time, it's not really what people want to do. Absolutely. So let's go back to the first part of Eric's question then. Do we think it's good that people get the chance to go back and play old games? You know, I think it's fascinating. Like when people first started getting huffy about HD remakes and HD remasters all the time, um, it kind of made a bit more sense because... There were maybe, well, there weren't less games, but there's now a huge amount of games out coming out all of the time. Yes. And so I feel like in a way we live in an age of content and I hate the word. I really do. Um, people sometimes call me a content creator and I prefer the term internet dickhead. <laughs> um, quite honestly, I prefer that. Uh, but it's, I find now it's the same thing really of like, I feel guilty about it when I make a new video, but I need to get more into the habit of like when I make a new video to, you know, do a tweet or a post about it maybe every day or every other day for maybe a week. Because the thing is, you can slave over making something, but then if you just put it out there once and then that's it, um, then people stop seeing it. And I kind of feel like with with these remakes and these remasters, I kind of see it in a way, as long as the game is still relevant and the game is still good, 
It's just a way of basically bringing it back into the public consciousness. I mean, ideally, we wouldn't have remakes and remasters of important games. Ideally, we'd have a games press that goes back and reminds people exactly. to play these things. But I don't it's think about that fighting, necessarily happens. Exactly. It's about fighting for oxygen. And I hate it in some ways because I find often when people remaster graphics particularly, it doesn't make sense for the, the main dev team to do it. They get farmed out to other places. Admittedly now, people are getting better at it, but we've had some horrific results in the past. Yeah, plus, I mean, you end up robbing the game of its original context. There's a whole weird thing, which I think is really important, about like, I, I can go back and play, like, say, Final Fantasy VII, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when the when the re, when the episode one of the remake comes out, a lot of people who never played FF7 are going to go back and play it, and they will not have the context of it being 1997 or whenever that game came no. out. Yeah. They won't understand why it was meaningful. They won't understand. Like, in a way, if you want to understand FF7, it's almost, I think, if you want to understand the cultural impact of an old game, it's better to go back and play it with its old graphics than updated graphics, because then you're just playing a confused smorgasbord that no one recognizes. Yeah. Um, uh, so I th- Yeah, with older stuff, it's it's a strange one, and I really do think, but, but it's funny at the moment, like, um, I, not in any circles I, I'm involved with or care about, but I find it fascinating that lots of people are getting annoyed about stuff like the Nintendo Switch having... Mario Kart, the Wii U's Mario Kart is one of the games. And people are like, well, you want people to pay the full price for a game that came out? To, and it's like, well, a game that came out, yes, but like it's on comparable hardware now, but it's, it's handheld hardware. And you think like, it's this idea that everybody's consumed everything that I don't like. The idea of being like, oh, you're bringing out something that I've already seen. Bring me something new. When it's like, you know, the Wii U sold so poorly. Like, it's a good Mario Kart game. How many people played it? Like, mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, I think as somebody I saw being like, they're not bringing it out on this for the people who bought it on Wii U. They're bringing it out in the hope of coaxing the millions of people who bought 3DSs who never bought a Wii U. Or like the 5.9 billion people in the world. On the planet, exactly. So I I kind of feel like um, in the older days where maybe it felt like the video game cycle was different and you would wait all year for a couple of good games at the end. Now I feel like we're constantly drowning in stuff. And really, whatever tactics people need to use to try and cut through this wall of content to give stuff a second shot, I'm down with that. Because I find it upsetting to find out that there are games which are great, which just I will never hear about. Not even that people won't hear about. Like I try and find them, but people are releasing stuff all the time and so much stuff just disappears. I mean, it sucks, man. Like Just because the, the tech that we... <sighs> we become used to video games being looking so good that they get left behind immediately. It's not like yeah. uh, movies where like I can go back and watch a bunch of classic movies from 1989 or something and they'll still look basically as good. Like games get lost and then they become unplayable, which is like heartbreaking Yeah, because the industry moves on so much, which gives this uh, whole scene a really exciting momentum. But also, yeah, stuff just gets forgotten and the deeper you get into the games industry, the more you end up spending time with designers and you realize just how much time went into these things it's sad and crazy yeah so i'm f- completely now i'm i'm very much against really the kind of like the argument that when people go oh developers do something new trying to resell it, as if it's a conspiracy I, I it's it's really at the moment i think like i think products especially products which are designed in a way which makes them more timeless uh they deserve a second shot and you know what if we have a system whereby the only way you can get people to care about a game that came out years ago is by re-releasing it with a fresh lick of paint do it. I mean, I think there's some nice exceptions. I've been really tempted to go back to Dragon Quest VIII on the 3DS because they've actually added some new features which allow you to do things like speed up the combat to double speed and all these things which basically like, you know, the times have changed and I will not sit through an old JRPG that is that pace again. So having that option, great. But I find it interesting that there are other regards 
And actually, a lot of JRPGs, like Final Fantasy XII, they're doing the same thing with the remaster, having a just make the game twice as fast thing. Like, it's basically emulation. Why not do it? People are not as patient as they were 10 years ago. And I will wait for that. But I find it amazing how frequently you see people being like, oh, I can't wait for the re-release of this game. And it's like, you know, you've, you've had a game here that you could have played for 10 years and you haven't, but you're going to play it now. Like, but you could still play it now oh, for it's half the, the price. It's the weird completionism. It's strange. It's but, like um, you, you, like people will not finish 90% of the games in their collection, but they'll still buy the version with all the DLC. Exactly. Like, it's like, you're not going to see all of that DLC. So I think it's like, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Yes, or just hate that games have so much padding that they become unplayable. If games didn't have half as much padding, then we'd be able to go back and play stuff a lot more. You know, if if like uh, Telltale um, Walking Dead, for example, mm-hmm. if all those episodes weren't, because they're like two, two, three hours long, if those episodes were 30 minutes or 45 minutes long, which is like totally conceivable, yeah. then the whole series becomes much more playable. But we have this thing where games value. Yeah, you need quote unquote value. And so games have to be long, so they become unplayable a few years on. And yeah. It is bizarre, and we all are completely guilty in our own ways, I think, of having collections of games often full of very big things that we'll never touch. And I think I really do think that a lot of the, one of the biggest illusions of games is, and one of the, the big allures of games is, there, is the illusion of the idea we'll have time to play them. I think as we get older, it becomes more, it's like the fantastical idea of like, you know, when I see a game like Witcher 3, I'm still playing The Witcher 3. Are you? Like slowly, glacially. <laughs> like I'm playing it like... Every year I sit down for like, it's almost becoming like a new Christmas tradition. That's how I play Kentucky Route Zero. I play it for like 10 hours and I think, oh, this is one of the best games ever made. But I I also then will not play it again for 12 months. And it's just because I feel like I don't have the time. But the idea that I will, and that's that's why I want a Switch. I want a Switch. I want Zelda. I I want to sit and have that boundless time sync experience. But I'll probably buy one and play it for an hour, which is reality. But hey. If I can be totally honest, this podcast has not quite refilled my life <laughs> enthusiasm for the medium, but it's going to come back because it will always come back. It always comes back. And sometimes it's not your fault. I remember I lost mine for years and I played Resident Evil 4 and I went, what the hot hell is this? I've never played anything like this. So I think a lot of people are just in that zone and we're just freewheeling and people are putting out safe products because it's a turbulent marketplace and we need people to whip off their socks and do something strange and surprising. It also bums me out that like when early access got really big, like over the last two years, I've been playing so many great early access games and now they're still in development. Like games like The Long Dark or Subnautica that are just so good, but I played them early. So they should be coming out this year, but I've already done videos on them. And when they come out, they may not be what you want. An interesting thing, you know, we covered Kingdom and uh, one of the Kingdom, one of the people who worked on Kingdom actually commented, I think, either on YouTube or on coolghost.net. Um, basically saying, yeah, it's really you made some really interesting points about design, and they basically said like, yeah, I feel that we did end up because it started off as a game um, a long time ago on a, maybe a, a flash game or something like an online yeah. to play thing, and I think they they'd start off with something that was supposed to be a lot more experiential, but they said I, I guess that's what happens when the feedback you're getting is from gamers, which is a really interesting thing of like, yeah, you know, that dangerous like you see that in the board game scene a lot. So many big board games these days are um, kickstarted, mm-hmm. and the thing that I've just very simply realized now is the stuff that sells a Kickstarter is different from stuff that makes a good game. Yeah. So games, like, and it, that's exactly what we get with early access and stuff as well. The feedback you get from heavy early access fans. Yeah, they're, they're the people who bought it. They're the people, people who want to money. play the game forever. want to play it. And they go, well, why don't you make this? Why don't you make more this? Why don't then, you do this yeah. to give it more replayability and make it harder? Why don't you explore this system? When in reality, like that game would probably be good if you played it for 
Kingdom could be the best like two hour game ever. Yeah. Like um like a beginner's guide. But it's the feedback you get. Hey, how and good is beginner's guide? It's good. It's good. It Maybe very sad, but it's very good. But again, that's what happens when you make a game in a vacuum where out of nowhere you just go, hey, here's a game. It's yeah, out. exactly. And it's personal. It's made by you and it's yeah. Oh, but uh, it's an interesting slippery slope and we're seeing the results of it now um, but I think you know we'll have to see another shift as well we need a lot of paradigm shifts at the moment Things you know, get what's funny to. is that um, Lee always talks about how we you know a market crash is coming and it's like the way I wonder if the reason we've avoided that and games being too expensive and not making enough money is just crowdfunding like crowdfunding has allowed it's almost like um, someone who doesn't make enough money from their job but rather than declaring bankruptcy they take on a payday loan <laughs> You know, like people have just taken money for games that aren't even finished yet to make all these great indie games and to make uh, to bring old sequels back and stuff. Yeah, but it's that promise, and I think that's uh, again why, like, we're never going to have a really big. And this is the the, the yeah. side effect of doing all the crowdfunding is that the games coming out now are more like what gamers think they want rather than what designers are doing to push the envelope. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think that's true, and I find it's often why I find I play something in early access. And I think this is so exciting, but then I'm not one of the people who plays it every day and keeps sending feedback. And so I don't get a say in what happens. It's like, it's basically like being an expat, you know, it's, well, it's not quite because you still get to vote and stuff, but it's this idea of like, you know, you leave a country, you go, I love this country. And then you leave and then you come back 20 years later and you go, what have you done to it? And it's like, well, you weren't here. You didn't, you weren't invested in it. And you're like, well, I was, I was just going to. But it's like, I've got other things to do around the world. In this analogy, the people who stay at home have to be like the people who are slightly weird and crazy. Yeah. Um, or just intense, you know, people who want to play something forever. And so you end up with weird infinity things. Anyway, we've had a tremendous ramble. It's, it might not have re-inspired you to the medium, but it's definitely... Uh, it's been a really interesting discussion. It's reinvigorated my uh, my ability to see the, the insane breadth and, and scope, but also realise everything's just cycles and loops. And I'm going to so. go home and play Night in the Woods. I really want to play that. It looks cool. I've got some games I want to play. I'll probably just play Neo. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to the Dark Souls podcast. I uh, hope you guys are enjoying the new format. Uh, we've been a bit erratic on the, the timings of it, but we're trying to get to it once every two weeks. But hopefully you guys will realise that if you have more space, we can have some more interesting podcasts for you. If you are sat on the train or in your car or at home staring on at a, horse. a wall, if you're on a horse looking over a hill and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, that was a really interesting and valuable discussion of video games, then hey, you can uh, give us a review. You can give us a review on iTunes. Whatever podcast software you're using. Uh, Probably lots of you have reviewed us already, though. So if you haven't reviewed us, then you can support the making of Darth Souls on coolghosts.net slash Patreon. Why don't you give... Do you think this podcast is worth a dollar, Matthew? I think it's probably worth a dollar. One dollar. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, if you really like the podcast or you like the videos we do, then uh, it's a... a, I forget to remind people of this, to be honest. Uh, But we we are... We're just really bad at the internet. But, yeah, we're completely crowdfunded. We don't do any advertising. We don't do any sponsorships. Uh, um, So, yeah, if you really like what we do, even if you just listen to the podcast... What we do is funded by people who believe it's worth a dollar. So if you also believe it's worth a dollar, then go on to Patreon right ruddy now. Yeah. Alternatively, if you haven't got any cash, that's fine. Just pop by to coolghost.net, say hello, have a chat about the podcast in the comments on there because we do put stuff on YouTube as well. But, you know, you, the discussion is uh, is is mixed <laughs> in terms of <laughs> quality. Kind of you. Uh, which is very kind of me, yeah. Anyway, either way, thank you very much for listening. It's always a pleasure to know people are listening to us ramble. Absolutely. We'll uh, see you next time. Yeah, take care, everybody. Bye. Uh, Matt will be back after GDC with all kinds of hot goss. I will. Goodbye. Goodbye.